So last week we looked at the uh, most most controversial part of the Apostles' Creed, that is, he descended into hell, um, he rose again from the dead on the third day. That, that's the most controversial. This is probably the most neglected. Um, and, and because of that, um, I'm going to touch on a few different elements, none of them in detail. Uh, just as you can preach week by week about Easter, so also you can preach week by week about the ascension of Christ. That is, every year you, you go to church, um, maybe you don't, maybe if you go to church every year, and you'll probably hear some sort of Easter message every year, but you don't of, uh, often hear an ascension message every year. That is, you, we just kind of go through church and we never really think about Jesus leaving. We just kind of, you know, most of us, if we come across it in our Bible reading, we note it and then we move on. But in the modern church mindset, the ascension of Jesus has been ignored so much to the point where functionally, we just think that Jesus kind of disappeared. You know, like he kind of left and then the book of Acts was written and, you know, we, we all know about Paul and Peter and the churches that were established and the different moves throughout church history, but we just kind of think Jesus kind of left the scene. And, and so because it's so neglected, um, some of these things may sound a little foreign to you, but I assure you they're extremely biblical. And um, today we're going to look at what the ascension means for us through these things. First, we're going to focus on the phrase of the Apostles' Creed that he ascended into heaven. Next, we're going to look at the what it means that Jesus is seated at the right hand. That doesn't really mean much to us. Maybe you're left-handed. Maybe you think that's biased against left-handed people. We're going to talk about that. We're going to look at what the ascension means for us in our future hope. That is, that is from an eschatological point of view or, or the end of all things. The ascension has something to say about what we hope for the future. And then we're also going to look at what the ascension has for our present hope. That is, what, it, what does it mean? Why is it beneficial that Jesus ascended and isn't here anymore? Um, we're going to look briefly at Pentecost, which was the point of the reading today. And then finally, we're going to look at what it means for us to integrate the ascension into our faith and become those who are heavenly minded. So with that, let's get started. Um, throughout this series, we've been talking about a phrase that I like to call, and many call, the unfolding of the redemptive plan of God. That is the eternal covenant, which was established before the beginning of time, before creation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had eternally covenanted together to, uh, to bring about redemption. And while that, that, while that covenant was veiled for a time, God throughout history has unfolded and revealed more and more of that covenant. And so last week we looked at the fact that Jesus died, and we didn't really cover why Jesus had to die. Um, we, we covered that he experienced and tasted death for us, but why did he have to die? Well, to go that to, to cover that, we need to touch on the fall for a second. So before the fall, that is the, the sin of Adam in the garden, God delegated his rule and his reign over creation to Adam. And when Adam listened to the voice of the serpent and entered into sin, he lost that authority and Satan usurped that power. 
Um, this isn't didactically explained in Genesis 3 or 4, but it is spoken about all throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. It speaks of Satan as being not only the prince of this world, but also the god of this age. So in in Christ's work in coming to the cross, many of us think, you know, if you ask the question, why did Christ come to the, to the earth? Well, in John 17, he says he came that the, the Father's name would be glorified. But if you ask most of us, we would say that Jesus kind of came to, um, you know, to die on the cross. And that's true. He did come to die on the cross, but that's not the whole truth. He, everything that Christ did in all of his earthly ministry, all of his work on this planet was was all pointed to completely undoing the usurpation of power by Satan after the fall. So let's look at how each element of Christ's work, not just the, the cross, but each element of Christ's work was a defeat against Satan. That is, everything that Jesus did on this planet, both his birth his, even the annunciation, the, the annunciation of his birth, his actual birth, the, the actions in the temple, each of those were subsequent defeats of and victories against Satan. In the first example, we see the return of the 72. Um, we won't get into how the annunciation was a defeat of Satan, but, but in the incarnation itself, the incarnation was the means by which God Des- desired and decided to defeat Satan, that through, the, through his creation, that is, his son would come and be united to what he had himself uh, created and, and would, would destroy the work of Satan uh, through his own life. Not only Jesus' life, but also his entire earthly ministry. In Luke 10, it, Jesus had just sent out the 72, and they had gone out to all the, the towns of Israel, or, or most of them, and had preached the gospel. That is, they had announced that Jesus is, is uh, about to bring the kingdom, and they had begun to proclaim his name and begun to cast out uh, demons and heal the sick. And so these 72 guys, these, these disciples, come back to Jesus. And they, they were, it says in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus sends out the 72, and they begin to perform these, uh, you know, what we might sometimes think as an exorcism, that is, there was a deliverance of these people, these people of Israel, the people of God, who had been corrupted and were experiencing demonic uh, interference, that is, they were, they were being pestered by these demonic spirits. Jesus sends the 72 out. They destroy the influence of the demonic over those the, over some of the people of God. And Jesus says that in the spirit, he saw Satan fall out of the heavens like lightning. That it was a quick and decisive victory. That is, the gospel had begun to spread and Satan was being defeated. In John 12, when Jesus is speaking uh, to a crowd, 
there's some Greeks who come and they've heard about Jesus and they, they, they show up and ask the disciples, hey, we want to see Jesus. And so Jesus knows the point of his uh, earthly ministry and the, you know, what, what Paul explains in the book of Galatians and the book of Ephesians and what Peter explains in 1 Peter, that, that is the, the mystery hidden from all ages that the Israelites and the Gentiles were going to be made into one people. And so when Jesus sees these Greeks, these Gentiles coming to, uh, to him, uh, looking for wisdom from the Messiah, he knows that it's about to, the, that he's about to go to the cross. In John 12, 31 through 33, it says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So we just saw how Jesus said that Satan fell from the heavens like lightning. That, he, that is, in some way, there was this victory in the heavenly realm that the disciples had carried out and that had cast Satan out of the heavens. And now... Jesus says that by the cross, the ruler of this world or the ruler of this age is going to be cast out. Uh, by no means should we come to understand that Satan is the owner of creation. He's not. Rather, he has just temporarily usurped power against humanity through the work uh, or through the sin of Adam. And so when he says that the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. He, he, he really means, or, or another way to understand it, is the ruler of this age. That word world or age actually is the same word aeon, which means a time period, but it also refers to the planet. It's kind of a complicated concept. Nevertheless, when we're talking about Satan being the ruler of this age, we should never think that he has somehow has like the title deed to the earth. Or, or something like that. God is totally sovereign and he owns creation. Uh, and Satan for a time has been causing some trouble. And yet we're seeing that everything that Jesus did, not just the work on the cross, is a progressive defeat against Satan. In John 14, just a, a two chapters after John 12, uh, before the cross, when Jesus is speaking to the disciples, he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. So, so the ruler of this age, that is Satan, had a claim on all of humanity that had gone astray through the sin of Adam. And Jesus comes and says, the ruler of this age has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And then two more chapters later in John 16, when Jesus is uh, talking about the promise of the Father, he also says that Satan is the ruler of this age. In John 16, 7 through 11, we read, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, uh, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, that is a present tense word. 
Okay, many of us have so elevated a uh, very tangentially scriptural or tangentially scriptural uh, definition of of spiritual warfare, we've so elevated it that in our minds, Satan is still in some way the only ruler of this world and the only uh, prince of this air. Paul does indeed say that after the cross, Satan still is the, the prince of the power of the air. But in some real way, what happened in Luke that we read earlier, Satan has been cast out of the heavens. And so what is, how are we to understand this seeming contradiction? We have, to, we have to reconcile these scriptures by coming to realize that there is a progressive defeat over Satan, just as there is a progressive unveiling, that is a progressive visual clarity or experiential reality of the eternal covenant of redemption. So that being said, um, one last verse in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8. This is Paul, Paul agreeing with Jesus that Satan is the ruler of this age. He says, but we impart, that is, he's talking about his ministries, his team's ministry, their apostolic ministry, the point of their, the point of their mission, that is, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God had decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul, in a literary way, is even connecting the rulers of this age, that is the, the Pharisees and the Romans, to that same phrase that we saw earlier, the, the ruler or the God of this age or the, the prince of the power of the air. And so when we see this uh, unfolding, we have to come to realize that Christ's ascension was also part of this progressive defeat of Satan. So the creed uses a active voice to describe Jesus's ascension. Last week, we noted how both God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit were all involved in the rising of the dead. We saw that uh, there are verses in the New Testament that say that the, the Holy Spirit um, was the, the person through whom the Father raised Christ from the dead. But the creed focuses on the phrase, Jesus rose from the dead. I believe in Jesus Christ. And then later on, a few, a few phrases later, he rose from the dead. So, so the creed is, is, is using this active voice to describe Christ's work, but it's not denying the fact that the Father was involved or that the Holy Spirit is involved. But the point of the language of the creed is to demonstrate Christ as the, the person through whom humanity has triumphed over Satan. That's the point of, of, of 1 John. It says that, uh, that we have overcome the world. How did we overcome the world? Through the victory that Christ bought for us. Well, how did that victory get applied to us? It got applied, applied to us by faith because Christ is a high priest. That is, he's, he was found in our appearance. That is, uh, the language of Hebrews 1 says that the work of Christ can be transmitted to us by God, that it, it can be counted as, as uh, our work by faith because of the gift of God. That is, it was God's eternal plan for Christ to take on the form of a human and to be found in our likeness and to go through these things as our representative. And so the point of the creed in saying that Christ ascended, he ascended into heaven, it's not really so focused on whether God the Father raised up Christ 
to the heavens, but it's rather focused on what Christ has done for us. That is, we had no access to the heavenly realm. And Christ, after defeating sin, Satan, death, and the grave, went up to heaven to continue to unfold that plan of redemption. So these are all the things that we had kind of looked at as Christ's work. And the ascension is when Christ goes to seal the work that he had done on the, on the earth. And we, we had, have already noted that some of his work was, was these things. That is the calling of the apostles to do signs, wonders, and healings on the, on the earth in the midst of the people of Israel, which was to demonstrate the heart of the father. That is God wanted his people back. Um, the, one of Jesus's roles was the rebuke of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the corrupt religious system of the day. His certain, certainly part of his work was the atonement. And then finally, through his resurrection, uh, the conquering of Satan, death, and the grave. And so, so all of this is building up to a moment. And this is the ceiling of Jesus's work. That is, he didn't just ascend and kind of leave. He ascended for a reason, and that was to put a permanence or a seal on what he was doing in establishing the church. So he didn't just merely vanish, and it wasn't just a spiritual visitation, as Paul uh, mentions that he had he knows someone who had gone up to the third heaven, or John the Revelator, how he saw in the spirit that there was a door open in the heavens, and he heard a voice saying, come up here. It wasn't just a spiritual going up to heaven, but Christ in his body, with his human form, ascended into the heavens. That is, he went up on his own power. I mean, we are so impoverished in our, in our teachings today in the church that it's probably a completely foreign idea to you that Jesus ascended on his own power and that he retains his physical body. And that, uh, as we saw in Acts uh, 1 and 2, that he had received the promise of the Father and that his body, his resurrected form, his resurrected human frame, uh, he still retains that and is seated at the right hand of the Father with a human body. And that makes, uh, that has massive implication for us. So what does it mean that it's, he's seated on the right hand? This is kind of a weird phrase to us um, because we're, you know, politically correct and right-handed people and left-handed people are, you know, they're, they're equally valid and equally people. And that, that's not at all what this uh, phrase is saying. It, it isn't saying that people who are left-handed are somehow less worthy than the people who are right-handed. Um, the point of this phrase is that um, the scripture uses the term, the right hand, as a symbolic or a literary reference to the hand of power. Most people are right-handed. And so over and over again in the scriptures, it talks about the right hand being the um, the, the side of power or strength. So last week we had looked at this. This was the main point of the teaching last week, that the Christian makes progress in the faith by coming to a greater knowledge of God through the work and person of Jesus, being the express image of God's mercy, allowing one to treasure Christ over and against the passing pleasures of sin. That was the point of last work or of last week, that, that that is the way that the Christian makes progress in the faith. That is true. However, that sentence is focused on the finished work of the cross. It doesn't have anything to say about 
coming to a greater knowledge of God uh, through the work of Jesus that he's doing right now. And so when he's sitting on the right hand of the Father, uh, what the scriptures mean by that phrase is that he is seated near the Father, that is ruling and reigning in, in God the Father's uh, position for right now, um, until 1 Corinthians says that at the end of the age where he hands over the kingdom to the Father, um, Christ is ruling and exercising dominion for the church at the right hand of God. And it, what the scriptures mean by the right hand is that is the seat of authority and of power. That is the position of, of, of rulership or dominion. And so uh, we not only need to apply the knowledge of the finished work of Christ's cross and resurrection, that it is done and completed, but we also need to integrate that with the knowledge that Christ is still active on our behalf. Well, what is he doing? Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is all speaking about Jesus. This isn't describing the Father. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, or at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than, than theirs. So, so Christ is reigning. That is a human, a human being who is also the God man, a divine human being is reigning over all of creation, having totally triumphed over Satan who had temporarily usurped authority from Adam. And so Christ seated at the right hand means that the, the, prince of this world, the so-called God of this age, is no God at all, but rather has been triumphed over and is his defeat is sure, done, and being worked out more and more. And for Christ to be seated at the right hand, when we say that in the creed, we're saying that he not only rose from the dead, but he triumphed over the, the, the God of this age and for the church is ruling and reigning as the head of the body. So this has an implication for us. Our future hope is that Christ not only uh, has ascended, but we too will ascend with him. One implication of the fact that he retains his physical body is that this gives us hope that we will be with him where he is. That is, his incarnation is not undone by his ascension. And that is probably the subtle heresy that the neglect of the doctrine of the ascension begins to bring in, that when Jesus left, he somehow is no longer human anymore. Uh, but it's actually the case that Christ is still, uh, he still has, and, and forever will have a human frame. Because of this, he's become our high priest and he will not abandon us. In John 14, one through three, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So what is Jesus doing at the right hand? He's not only ruling and reigning over all of creation for the church, he also is preparing a place for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. 
So Christ has promised to the disciples and therefore the church that he will come back. So in the meantime, what do we do? Well, the ascension also has implication for our present hope. Hebrews 7, 22 through 25 or through 28 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor or the the person who guarantees uh, a better covenant. The former priests, the priests of Israel, the old covenant system, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So, so Jesus, in his, uh, in his taking on of the role of high priest and mediator for us, is still doing that work. He's still in that role of being high priest. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. So he's not just ruling and reigning on behalf of the church. He also is praying to the Father continually. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heaven. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, that is the unveiling of the spoken word through the person and work of Jesus, that, that appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That is God, the word that God spoke to fully reveal the, the, the thing that the old covenant system merely pointed to was that Christ was going to be our high priest. And he was, after making a sacrifice for us, was going to continually offer up petitions to the father on our behalf. So Christ is continually making intercession. What does intercession mean? It means he is standing in our place and praying to the Father those things which we would or we should be praying for ourselves, but don't even know to pray for ourselves. And so what is he praying? Well, it's clear what he's praying. He's praying the same thing that he prayed for in John 17. That is that his disciples, his followers would be kept from the evil one, that they would be um, sanctified from all Uh, defilement of sin, all defilement of conscience. He also is praying that they would be glorified. That is, that the glory of God would be manifested through us. That that the glory of God would be residing in the church and being demonstrated to the world. And that's what he's praying for us. So the question is, uh, what does this do? Well, knowing for just a moment that Christ is in heaven currently, praying on your behalf gives you great hope and delivers you from a many number of fears that enslave you to continually worry and stress and sin against God's sovereignty by attempting to take control of things in your own. So the question is, when acknowledging Christ's current work as seating, as being seated at the right hand of the Father praying for you, is will the Father neglect and ignore the prayers of the Son, his glorified, ascended, faithful, perfect son. Absolutely not. That should fill you with great confidence. So finally, bringing this full circle to our reading today, the ascension should not be seen as Christ just kind of getting out of Dodge. 
he's not just kind of done with his work and was like, peace out, I'll see you later, maybe after 2,000, 3,000 years, whatever. It, the ascension being neglected for so long, many of us have come to believe this, that Jesus was just kind of done and he needed to leave. Uh, no, but rather Jesus's ascension did a great thing for us. The ascension should be seen, if we, if we see it properly, the ascension should be seen as the beginning of Christ's final task in his earthly ministry of the, redemptive, or the redemption and restoration of all things from the fall. And that final task was to pour forth of his spirit on his people, the called out assembly that were called out from the midst of the people of Israel. That is the church. Last week, we looked at Ephesians 4, and we noted how it talked about the fact that Christ possibly had descended into hell. And, and today, we're going to re-examine this scripture. Ephesians 4, 7 through 13 says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also himself who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all in all. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So what was the role in Christ's ascending? He, his role in ascending was to send the Holy spirit to do what? Not only to do the gifts of the spirit as most of us being, you know, somewhat charismatic would think, you know, Christ went to, to go to the father, to pour out the Holy spirit. So we could all speak in tongues. Yes. True, but also he gave gifts to men. That is, he endowed men, the, the children of God, he endowed them with gifts that were to be exercised and demonstrated and carried out in the administration of the church. That is, he gave some of the men as apostles. He gave some of the men as prophets. Why did he give them? It says in verse 12, he gave them for this purpose, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. He didn't give them so that they could do the work of the ministry. My goal is not to do the work of the ministry for you guys. My goal is to equip you to do the work of the ministry because that's what it says here. Christ gave the Holy Spirit and in doing that, he gave gifts to men. What are those gifts? The offices of apostle, prophet, shepherd, evangelist, and teacher the fivefold ministry, which we all think is, you know, like we're all kind of fivefoldish, and I'm more ap apostolic than prophetic. No, like that's not the purpose of what this scripture says. It says that Christ gave gifts to the church, and these gifts are offices and roles that are carried out for the equipping of you to do the work of the ministry. So Pentecost was not only when Christ did this, but it was also, as we read, the final sign, one of the final signs to the house of Israel that they had totally missed their Messiah. Um, <clears throat> in looking at that, um, I, I don't, I'm running out of time and I knew I would be at this point. The temple was left desolate as, desolate as 
Christ had said in Matthew 23. And what we see in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that the glory, the glorious Holy Spirit, was being placed in this new temple that is what Peter calls you who are being built up as living stones into one foundation built on the cornerstone, which was rejected. Peter ties it into that, uh, that, that the Israelites or uh, the people of Israel had missed their Messiah by rejecting Christ and that the Holy Spirit was going to be placed into this new temple that is the people of God. So what does this do for us, learning all of these elements, which we could all probably read a book on each one, um, what does this do to us? Well, just as last week we saw that the that coming to a knowledge that Christ has totally defeated sin in the grave allows us to say no to sin, so also the knowledge that Christ has ascended on our behalf to the right hand of the Father, this allows us to become heavenly-minded. And this is the point of Paul's exposition of the Gospels. The ascension has a deep, profound spiritual application to you, and if Christ didn't ascend, then these scriptures are meaningless. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 and verse 10, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. This is talking about an eternal work that God had done before, uh, before, before we even had anything to do with it. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. For a long time, I was taught and also believed that verse 7 mostly meant that in the ages to come, our, our demonstration of God's mercy would be the eternal praises that go on around the throne. And that's true. But Paul says that in verse 10, that there are good works that we're supposed to do. Now, let me tell you, you can't evangelize after the final judgment. After the final judgment, when we're all in heaven, in the ages to come, you, you can't heal the sick. There aren't going to be any sick people in, in heaven. So the good works that Paul mentions, these good works are now good works. They're not later good works. They're good works that God prepared beforehand for you to start doing now. So what are we to do with this knowledge? Well, I'll close with this. In Colossians 3, Paul expounds and tells us some of these good works, which are healing and, and witnessing of the gospel to, to people, the, the um, visiting of those who are in prison, the, the words of comfort to the oppressed, the, the, the assistance given to widows. Uh, but the good works carry out... Uh, or we carry out those good works in abstaining from sin and putting to death sinful behavior. This is the point that Paul makes in Colossians 1. Um, sorry, this is Colossians 3. I, was, I made a typo. Colossians 3, 1 through 10. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Paul's I'm trying to train you through these sermons to read the scripture, at least, at least read Paul as a series of propositions. That is, he makes arguments and the, the sentences flow together. And you can't just jump into any book and just read one verse out of context and build your entire faith or hope on it. Paul makes an argument here. 
okay, now that we know that we've ascended with Christ in a spiritual way, that he ascended on our behalf and opened the way to heaven for us as a first fruits of those who, uh, those are the children of God who would be glorified. Because we know that, what does Paul say is the outcome? He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What's the outcome of understanding this? The outcome of understanding this is verse 5 through 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. He said, once walked. We're not walking that way anymore. And if you are, what's going on? That's what Paul's trying to say, wake up. In these things, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have been put seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So let's pray. Father, we ask you that this would come true for us. We ask you that in moments of temptation we would see your son like Stephen Solomon with the heavens open and the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. God, we ask you that you would open up the point of your scriptures in, in what they say about the ascension, that we would find ourselves armed with mighty assistance from the Holy Spirit when we encounter temptation, and that you would give us confidence and assurance of salvation, that you would communicate to us grace by your Holy Spirit, in those moments where we find ourselves wanting to do these things that Paul says we must put away. God, I ask you for myself, for this church, that you would create in us a living understanding of what has happened, not only through the finished work of Jesus Christ, but also what he's doing now, and that we would build up our confident hope of his returning to this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.